0: We think that we're the smartest of our time. We think that progress is just constant. You go back into these early books and you're like, oh, damn, we really should read old books. Right here in this one chapter, the one day is the theory of evolution. (laughs) Like, that's a whole monster that at some point readers should just go and just read chapter 12, which is Saturday, and just go into like some of his thoughts. This is where he introduces the timeline of the world, which I love. It brings into all these questions of how old is the world? When did the flood happen? 1665 years after the making of the first man, inhabitants of the world with the exception of eight people were destroyed by a flood. He sort of breaks it down into a timeline exactly how many years it was from when he wrote it from the Bible. And it's brilliant. It's brilliant the way that he lays it out. He still had a day off, which is where he contemplated the accomplishments of his week. He has a whole day off there. That's an important day. He sanctified that one day or a million days, I don't know, a million years, who knows.
1: Yeah, that's one of the things Angersol points out is if it was epochs and not days, how long is the Sabbath?
0: What's the point of the one important day? And then he also asks like, what did he do after he got rested? Has he done anything since that Saturday? Did he create anything since that Saturday evening of that first week?
1: Maybe he's been creating the other universes. It's an open question, but it's certainly not resolved in the text.
0: He brings up, like, is rest holier than labor? If there's any difference between the days, shouldn't it be considered the best in which the most useful labor has been performed? He says uh, he finds it ridiculous and says that to think that we can please an infinite being by staying in some dark and somber room for one-seventh of the time instead of walking in the perfumed fields. Are you kidding? He made nature. We should enjoy nature, not sit in a somber church for a seventh of our life. This is something what he says in that last chapter, moving off the stories of the Bible and off those last seven days. The Christian Sabbath, our Lord's day, was legally established by Constantine, right? The Murderer Constantine. Uh, and because, <laughs> Hold on, uh,
1: I, I do not subscribe <laughs> to calling him the Murderer Constantine. <laughs>
0: But he made the Lord's day. He was like, it's this day. Based upon the Christian Sabbath, that was the day that Christ rose from the dead. Then Ingersoll says, let's throw away these superstitions and take the higher, nobler ground that every day should be rendered sacred by some loving act, by increasing the happiness of man, by giving birth to noble thoughts, putting in the path of toil, some flowers of joy, and helping the unfortunate, lifting the fallen dispelling gloom, destroying prejudice, defending the helpless, and filling homes with light and love. He throws all these random sections in the book where you're just like,
1: oh, see, you're not a monster. (laughs) Who could argue with make every day special? I was just thinking that I do wonder sometimes what is this Christian Protestant obsession with suffering that seems to have gone on for thousands of years. And I think it's
0: all comes from the Torah, right? It's the Pentateuch. The Pentateuch is the Torah. And so all of that, it's written down in the Bible, the suffering, this kind of thing is what God supposedly wants.
1: I think it's the idea that the life of a desert dwelling Mesopotamian was subject to many different whims, almost all of which could cause imminent death. So being organized and being really fastidious about everything was important because If you screwed up your harvest, you would die. You had nothing to eat. So there's this sort of idea of toiling and working and making sure that you show up every single day and work as hard as you possibly can is sort of like spacing your suffering out over time rather than having it all hit you at once, causing death and calamity. I think that that is probably a good way to live your life as a desert dwelling nomad or as an irrigation farmer. But I don't know if it makes any sense when you're living in a city. When I think about the people who wrote this book were people who were facing down death every day. Some of the dietary restrictions, for example, which they don't even get into in this book, that we call kosher, were really just practical. It's hard to keep pigs in the desert, so that's a good thing to not eat. Also, if you're in the middle of the interior of the Sinai Desert and you come across some shellfish, definitely don't eat it. Let's move on to the garden. Bye, Sunday. So now we've got Adam and Eve in the garden. The first question is, where is this garden? Because it says that it's at the confluence of these four rivers. And one of them is the Euphrates. And that river is real and still is there. And we are aware of where its source is. It's somewhere in the Zargos Mountains, probably. There is no garden there.
0: Yeah, that's where it's supposed to be. And I would imagine at the time Moses, you know.
1: There's supposed to be an angel there with a flaming sword. he left a long time ago. (laughs) But he was supposed to be there forever. So in theory, he should be up there, but he's not. So that's okay. We'll move on from that. And then this was one of my favorite sections because it just asked these kind of silly questions that I never thought to ask. We all know the story. God created three trees, the tree of life, and then the knowledge of good and evil, and then the other tree. I don't remember what the third one was. This is something that I noticed when I read through the Bible with my friend Oren was that what he says about the tree of knowledge is, and this is a quotation, Thou shalt not eat of it, for when thou does, thou shalt surely die. So that statement has three lies in it, right? Thou shalt not eat of it, but he's God. He knows that they're going to eat of it. For when thou does, so he's even saying you shouldn't eat of it, but when you do, which I know you're going to do, you will surely die, which is also not true because they don't. It's a trap. It's a trap. Exactly. <laughs> So then the snake famously comes in and tempts Eve to eat the apple. And after Eve eats the apple, God curses the snake to slither in the dust for all eternity. Which begs the question, how did the snake get into the garden? Yeah, what was it doing
0: beforehand? Did it have feet?
1: How did it get in the tree? Did it slither? Yeah, well, so if it was slithering afterwards, what was it doing before? And the snake can reason, but snakes don't reason anymore.
0: I mean, I was taught that the snake was the devil.
1: That's not in there.
0: It's not. As a Southern Baptist raised in a Taiwanese... Southern Baptist Church in Houston, Texas. That's what I was taught. Wait, what now? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I grew up as a learning, practicing religious kid with my mother in Houston, Texas, and we went to a Taiwanese Baptist church. I was like one of two Caucasian families in this Taiwanese church.
1: Was it the only Baptist church in town? or No, it's just where my mother
0: took us. I don't know. I had no choice. Pastor and Father Sit were my people. They were great. We spoke half in Cantonese and half in English.
1: Are you Taiwanese?
0: No, I'm like Native American white Irish guy.
1: Yeah, I was gonna say it's important for the (laughs) listeners to know that Zach does not look like he would be Taiwanese at all. And I've also known him for many years. So (laughs) not Um, not at all. I'm just some Caucasian guy. Yeah. (laughs) That's an interesting aside. So this was one of my favorite questions that Ingersoll points out is how is it that Adam and Eve and the snake all spoke the same language? And what language was it? And how did they learn it? How is it possible, even for an infinite being, to make a man, a full-grown man, who can speak and reason and think without ever having had any thoughts.
0: And what was the language that Moses thought that they spoke? Was it Egyptian? Because Moses supposedly spoke Egyptian and Hebrew. So did he think that they spoke Hebrew?
1: Or maybe they spoke Sumerian, because he would have been aware that Sumerian was a language. At the time that Moses was supposedly writing this, Sumerian would have been the equivalent of Latin. It was pretty much a dead language, but it was an official language. And so my guess would be if you were trying to do religious things in spooky language. The language you would use would be Sumerian.
0: Why the snake is there was to teach doubt. That's basically the whole purpose of him.
1: Well, the snake must be allowed to be there because you can't sneak around an omnipotent being. The snake was created and put in the garden just the same as everything else. He goes into this great thing about. So, how did they learn the same language? Was God teaching Adam and Eve the language, and the snake snuck in and overheard it? <laughs> so clever. <laughs> It's a question that if you believe every word in the Bible, you have to ask. What language were they speaking and how did they learn it? If your answer is it's a miracle, then that's not really an answer. That's just saying I believe it because I believe it. Let's get on to my favorite chapter. Chapter 18. Dampness. Dampness about Noah and the ark. (laughs) Do you have anything to say about Noah and the ark? For me, the entire
0: world is destroyed. There's not another person except for Noah's people that survived, right? So where did all the people come from after that? Where did we get all of these different cultures afterwards? And how long did that take? Was that 1,500 years that you went from like 74 people to million, three million or something people? Wasn't it seven people that survived? But after that, then you go to these other places and the explosion of population and different races and different all oh, dot, 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 supposedly all came from Noah and the flood. This is again in supposedly Moses's understanding of what the world was when he was writing this being inspired or a pen of God, that he only believed that the world was just so big. He didn't have an understanding of all these other things at the time of writing it.
1: Their world was the Eastern Mediterranean.
0: But that's not what the Bible says.
1: So let's talk about the dimensions of the Ark, because this is one of my favorite arguments. This is an argument that Bill Nye busts out when he does arguments with creation scientists, which I love that he does them. I also don't think he should do them, because why give those people a platform? But he does. One of the arguments that he says is, let's just talk about the biblical dimensions of the Ark. Using that translation, all the distances are given in cubits. It's the distance from your middle finger to your elbow. It's sort of universally understood to be 22 inches. I'm going to give these distances in feet. Sorry for Europeans, but... That's what I know. And it's also what's in the book because he was an American. So the Ark was 550 feet long, 91.8 feet wide, and 55 feet high and divided into three stories. And it had how many windows? The answer is one. <laughs> one window at the top that is one cubit squared. So picture yourself on a cruise ship with one window <laughs> at the top. You're going to be on this cruise ship for the better part of a year with every animal on earth. And you'd think for an omnipotent being, right, that God would at least put one window in the front and one in the back. So you've at least got like an intake and a return situation. But no, just one window, which if the flood didn't kill everything on earth, smelling the smell coming out of that one window probably would have. The other thing is there's some argument between whether it was two of each animal or seven. It says seven of the clean animals and two of the unclean animals, which it's unclear which animal is which because the only animals they enumerate are animals that they knew of that existed in the Eastern Mediterranean. But if it was every animal on Earth, as most Christians claim, that means that there were either two or seven cassowaries running around. They're very mean birds, right? They hate people specifically. And there were two or seven hippos, which can't really support their own body weight for that long. They have to be in water. And there were two or seven elephants. How were you feeding all of these animals? And who was dealing with all of their waste? Were they shoveling it and literally putting it out this two foot by two foot window for a year? Somebody had to
0: deal with shoveling.
1: The other thing he said was that it was supposed to be every animal on earth. So how do they get there? And he does this calculation that a sloth from the Amazon, in order to cover the distance that they covered normally, if they had walked in a straight line, would have to have left 3,000 years ahead of the flood, 1,500 years before the world was created. The sloth would have had to have started walking (laughs) to Mesopotamia so it could get in the ark, and then it wouldn't be back in the rainforest till about now, give or take. The other interesting thing that was happening around this time that we talked about was they were discovering these tablets of Gilgamesh in the Temple of Ashurbanipal, or they were translating them. And they realized that, The flood myth was older than the Bible. The last third of Gilgamesh is about Utnapishtin, who is the man to whom the gods spoke and said, build an ark, put the animals in the ark. He did so, and then there was a great flood, and then Utnapishtin was granted eternal life for his efforts. The myth of the flood is older than the Bible. It just is. You can choose not to believe that, but there are mountains of evidence that show that is the case. What's described in the Bible and what Ingersoll describes is that the entire face of the earth was covered with five and a half miles of water for almost a year. That would have put enough pressure on the surface of the earth to obliterate every sign of every living thing. And then the flood subsides. You've got these seven people and every animal. And what are they eating? There's no grass. There's no trees. There's no other animals. So, what are they eating? How is he supposed to provision his ship without knowing how long the flood was going to be? If you go on a cruise ship, they bring on, you know, 200,000 eggs for a week at sea. If you told them you were going to go out for a week, but you actually went out for a year, you'd run out of eggs.
0: But isn't that the whole concept like the olive branch is dropped off by a bird, meaning that there's land and there's growth somewhere and now you're good? You can go land. Somehow, life sprung back up, and Moses doesn't account for
1: that. Also, the bird is also told in the story of Utnapishtim. the exact same thing. Gilgamesh is a fantastic book. So a little book society history. The way this started was I was talking with my friend Ian Merrigan, who is a brilliant, well-read hip-hop artist and smart dude. We were talking about Gilgamesh, and I said, we should record this and have this be a podcast. He said, you should have a podcast about books, and I don't really have any interest in doing that. <laughs> so I never recorded an episode on Gilgamesh, even though that's kind of how this started. <laughs> All right, so I think I've pontificated about dampness for long enough. So we can't leave without talking about slavery.
0: Which is a big deal. He brings up, yo, this is terrible. One of his things is he was, I think what his father was an abolitionist. And I think his mother was pro-women's lib sort of thing back in the day. So he grew up with good stock and he ended up doing really great things.
1: The Bible explicitly and in no uncertain terms, absolutely condone slavery.
0: Very much so. But maybe that's where slavery got the approval from. <laughs> you know, like, it's okay, it's in the Bible.
1: I don't think we would have been able to have the racial slavery that we had without a theological justification. And that theological justification is there, and it is in the Pentateuch, and it is elsewhere in the Bible. Slaves were encouraged or, I guess, forced to become Christians in most cases. That, to me, is one of the reasons that it seems ridiculous to say that you believe every word in the Bible, because the Bible condones some things that are horrifying.
0: Widely unkind. It's an unkind piece of
1: work. You know, I would love to have like a really articulate Christian academic explain to me why I'm wrong about all of these things that we've just talked about in the Bible and explain to me why the Bible is an inspired work and how I'm reading it wrong. Because reading it the way that I'm reading it, the entire thing doesn't make any sense. It's an awful collection of stories about a really horrible god.
0: Much later in the book, and I don't remember which chapter this is in, he writes, While reading the Pentateuch, I am filled with indignation, pity, and horror. Nothing can be sadder than the history of the starved and frightened wretches who wandered over the desolate crags and sands of the wilderness and desert, the prey of famine, sword, and plague. God was their greatest enemy and death their only friend. Yeah, the Bible's rough, especially the first five books. Moses wrote some rough stuff. He has an entire chapter dedicated to criticizing as we're talking about slavery. The whole chapter is only just criticizing slavery. He also states later that it is impossible to conceive of a more thoroughly despicable, hateful, and arrogant being than the Jewish God. In the mythology of the world, there is no parallel. He only is never touched by agony and tears. He delights only in blood and pain. Human affections are not to him. He cares neither for love nor music nor beauty nor joy. A false friend, an unjust judge, a braggart, a hypocrite, a tyrant, sincere in hatred, jealous, vain and revengeful, false in promise, honest in curse, suspicious, ignorant, changeable and unchangeable, infamous and hideous, such as the God of the Pentateuch.
1: This is how I feel. (laughs) (laughs) Jehovah is the meanest of the gods. He really is the most terrible of all the gods, and it makes sense that his people would have come to dominate the region, because in the name of their God, they were able to do horrible, horrible things, and he was just the biggest and baddest one. Well,
0: and the hard part of that support is that, he says, that had it not been for this book, the Bible, the world would have been inhabited by only savages, and that had it not been for the Holy Scriptures, that man never would have dreamed of the unity of God, that without the belief in God, civilization is impossible. If it weren't for the Bible, the world would be destroyed, is the whole belief system, which is ridiculous.
1: We have had many a civilization that have not been aware of the Bible or not believed in the Bible. Many a Western civilization, I mean, the Romans come to mind, the Greeks come to mind, the Egyptians come to mind, not to mention the Chinese, the Japanese the Native Americans, Native South Americans, there's no end to examples of societies that have come up and been benevolent and did not rely on racial slavery, for example. At no point
0: does Ingersoll say that God isn't real. He's saying that the God written about by Moses is cruel. Surely that's not the one we should be worshiping, is sort of his whole push. Way back in chapter 11, if there's a God, it is reasonably certain that he made the world, but it is by no means certain that he is the author of the Bible. And that's his big push. He goes on this gigantic list in fast but accurate detail, all of the hard to grasp and improbable things in the Pentateuch and shifts to a more human connection. It's a long list containing things like the 70 people did not in 215 years increase to 3 million, that Lot's life was not changed into chloride of sodium, that serpents never had the power of speech, that the origin of the rainbow, where God calls it as a promise that he'll never destroy the world again with a flood, is foolish fancy, that God did not murder people simply because they asked for something to eat, or that he did not demand human sacrifices as set forth in the last chapter of Leviticus that he never opened the earth and swallowed wives and babes because husbands and fathers had displeased him, that we cannot please God by believing the improbable, that crudility is not a virtue, that investigation is not a crime, that every mind should be free, that without liberty virtue is impossible, that without freedom even love cannot exist, that woman is the equal of man, that children should be governed by love and reason, that war is a hideous crime that all intolerance is born of ignorance and hate, that all the ignorant, infamous, heartless, hideous things recorded in the inspired Pentateuch are not the words of God, but simply some mistakes of Moses.
1: It's a great book. Zach, thank you for recommending this book. Thank you for being so well-prepared to talk about it. Thanks for reading it. I yelled at it a few times. It was great. I was both enlightened and enraged by it. The fact that it was written in 1879 just kind of blows my mind because it reads as if it could have been written today.
0: We think that we're the smartest of our time. We think that progress is just constant. You go back into these early books and you're like, oh, damn,
1: we really should read old books. That's how we ended up with America. The founding fathers were really devoted students of Roman history. We're going to close by asking you to recommend two books to our audience. Sure. Michael Dobbs' One Minute to Midnight. It's the Kennedy and Khrushchev
0: Cuban Missile Crisis. But it's told minute by minute of what happens in the world. Like each chapter is a minute of time. I like was sweating while I was reading it. And this stuff happened in the 60s. And I was just like, oh, this is incredible. It's really interesting. And I guess another book I would recommend is it's kind of a newer book. It's called Rasputin faith, power, and the twilight of the Romanovs. It's just about his life by Douglas Smith.
1: Thank you, Zach, for joining us. I think that we are going to have to have you back. That was really fun. Some Mistakes of Moses was an interesting book. Robert G. Ingersoll was an amazing man, and it was great to talk to you. So thank you so much. Always. Bye. Bye. The Book Society podcast is hosted by me, Lucas Cantor, and edited by Santiago Ramones, produced by Lucas Cantor, but also kind of produced by Santiago Ramones. And Santiago Ramones has his own podcast, and it's called Bit Depth, and it's really cool. And you should listen to it. You can reach me through my website, lucascantormusic.com. You can send me an email. You can give me a call. New episodes every Friday. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks.
0: God flooded the earth. He flooded it because he saw all the wickedness in the world. They just needed to be cleansed, but he put that there. It wasn't free will.
1: He's the one who on Saturday created fuckable giants.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. I guess that tracks.
1: If you make a fuckable giant, you can't be mad at me for fucking it.